Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 24. It says, therefore, these are the words of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And the second passage is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 17. It's the story of the rich young man. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell to his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call, one, why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for, for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is, e it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Sarah. Um, so over the last uh, number of weeks, we've been looking at some of the big questions uh, that we have about faith. So we've been looking at where is God in suffering? Uh, is heaven real? Life after death, is it real? Uh, is the Bible real? Is it fake news? Or how can we tell that the Bible is factual? Lots of the really big questions that maybe we wrestle with or we struggle with, or for those kind of outside our, our faith community, they would look in and think, how is it that you can believe what you believe? Because where is God in suffering? But this morning, we're going to be looking at kind of almost the reverse of that. So if we've looked at where is God in the hard times, where is God when we hit that moment where we're facing death? Actually, this morning, we're going to be looking at where is God when life is great? Where is God for the people who life is fantastic and everything's fine and everything's comfortable and all of those things which so often we hear are the things that are, don't bring happiness because they don't bring total fulfillment. Actually, the reality is for many people, they are the things that do. The actress Bo Derrick once famously said, people who say that money can't bring happiness simply don't know where to go to the right places to shop. Because actually, for many people, wealth does bring happiness. A comfortable life does bring happiness. Not everybody is walking around with an awareness of this God-shaped hole in their life, which so often we can kind of hear in the kind of church uh, culture being talked of, that sense of that God-shaped hole. 
For many people, they have no awareness of a God-shaped hole in their lives, which they think needs to be fulfilled in some way. You know, globally here today, we are living very, very comfortable lives. When we look at ourselves compared to the rest of the world, we're in some of the top percentage of the wealthiest people in the world. Because our lives, compared to many, many others throughout the world, are really, really comfortable. Even just a couple of years ago, the BBC suggested that Bourneville, the place where we are here this morning worshipping together, was the nicest place to live in the UK. I mean, for those of us that live here, we probably wouldn't argue with that. But we are here this morning worshipping in freedom. Nobody stopped us coming in this morning, and we're worshipping in a place which was suggested was the nicest place to live. We also live in a society which, in the majority, is bookended by two very different people groups who have very different opinions and outlooks on God. So kind of at the top end, in the majority of the world society in which we live here in the UK, are the baby boomers. These are the people who were born into an affluent generation, the people who quite often have paid off their mortgages by now, and we're so pleased for them, those of us who weren't born in that generation. But when the last census was taken in Bourneville in 2001, 70%, which is a very high percentage of that baby boomer generation, when ticking the box about which faith they were, ticked Christian. But actually, if you then put that percentage alongside the people who were coming to church, who were actively living a life for Jesus, they didn't match up at all. Because this was a generation that grew up thinking, well, we live in the UK, we live a fairly comfortable, affluent lifestyle, which means that we are Christian. That Christianity isn't about a relationship with Jesus. It's about living in a country which somewhere has its roots in Christianity and living a comfortable lifestyle. I know that that's a kind of generalization, but that is kind of the the generalization for that generation. But then right at the other end of society, we have the new generation coming through, which maybe some of you have kind of read about or heard about, which is Generation Z, the kind of younger generation, which as James Emery White in his book titled Meet Generation Z said, this is a group of people, the young people, the children in our church. And he says, These are not simply living and being shaped in a post-Christian cultural context. They do not even have a memory of the gospel. They do not know what the basics are. They don't even know what the cross is about. A really different generation who are so far removed from any idea of God. These are people without a God-shaped hole because they don't even have an awareness of God in their lives. You know the famous uh, kind of illustration that often gets used in evangelism? Well, you have a cross, on one side you've got yourself, the other side you've got God, and then you draw a cross in the middle to say, Jesus came so that you could get over to God. That means nothing to this generation, because the cross doesn't mean anything to this generation. And working with Riverside Performing Arts, we see this more and more over the last two years. At Easter, we've been performing our story of Joe's amazing Easter adventure, which is a kind of retelling of the Christian story. So many of the schools that we have performed that in, children have come up to us and said, I've never heard that story before. Did Jesus really die on a cross? What's crucifixion? And that shocks us because they don't know what it is. It's something which is so far removed from their upbringing that it means nothing to them. In the census that was taken recently in America, that generation, the kind of Generation Z, in the majority, over 70% of them, ticked none when asked what faith they were. 
because actually they have no faith because they've been brought up in a generation where faith doesn't actually exist. And anyone here watch Downton Abbey? the famous BBC programme, okay? Uh, I never actually watched loads of it myself, I watched a bit of it, but you may or may not be aware, um, in the Downton Abbey series, every single meal that was shown in that programme always started halfway through the meal. Probably no one ever even vaguely recognised that. That was because the producers took an active decision that they didn't want God to be a part of that programme. In the society in which Downton Abbey was set, every meal, culturally, because of society, would have started with a prayer. It would have started with grace. But before that series was filmed, the producers actively sat down and made the decision, we don't want God to be a part of this programme, so we will never show the start of a meal in any series of Downton Abbey, because we don't want to include prayer. So the meals were started halfway through the meal, so that culturally we never had to see that they didn't pray in the meal, because they didn't want them to be praying. So that's the kind of society in which we live, where for many of the generations that are making up our society today, God simply either isn't a thing or is a thing because of who you are and because of where you live. So for those people, actually, when life is fine and life is comfortable, there is no need for any challenge or any change that says, but what about that God-shaped hole? Where is God in your life? Because actually life is so fine and life is so comfortable, there is no need to have God in their lives. But actually, as um, we look at the Bible, we are radically challenged by Jesus on this thinking and on this teaching, which we kind of get so often in our society today. And we're going to look at kind of mainly at three different passages, two of which Harry read to us this morning. But the third, a very famous passage that for many of us who have been around in church for a while probably know John 10.10 10, as quite a famous kind of benchmark verse for many of us. And in John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And that is one verse which radically challenges their sense of there's no need for God in our lives. Because Jesus suggests in that one verse that actually the way that you can have life and have life to the full is only through a relationship with Jesus. That however comfortable, however fine, however fantastic your life is, if Jesus is not at the center of your life, you will never know what life in all its fullness really is. And the kind of surrounding verses around that passage talk about Jesus as the good shepherd. And he uses the illustration that when the sheep are out in the fields, they know the voice of their shepherd. And so they follow their shepherd, and the shepherd takes them to safety. And when the wolves come and attack, they will follow their shepherd because their shepherd would lay down his life for them, and they know his voice. But alongside that, it also talks about the hired hand, who is there in the field working with the sheep, looking after the sheep someone who has been paid to come and help the shepherd in looking after the sheep. But it says that in those moments when the wolf attacks and when danger comes, because the hired help has no care for the sheep, actually he will abandon them. That as the wolf comes and he attacks the sheep, the hired hand will run off to save himself and the sheep then are left in danger. But for the sheep, if the shepherd isn't there, actually all they have is the hired hand. And that's the voice that they listen to. And if that voice suddenly disappears, then what do they do? 
And for so many in our society today, that even though there might not be an awareness of that God-shaped hole and that sense of God not being at the foundation of your life, if the shepherd isn't there, then there will be a hired hand or something else that will come and will form the foundations of the life that you are living. There are many things which make life fantastic, many things which people probably do put at the foundation of their lives, whether that's finances or your house or the house you aspire to have, whether that's your health, your relationships, your friendships, the children that you have, the partner that you have. Maybe it's your own expectations of what others think of you, always trying to live up to those. Maybe it's that sense of trying to keep up with the Joneses, that all of those things so very easily become the foundations on which we can live our lives and make our lives as full as we think they should be. And I think for many people, if one of those things suddenly gets taken away, how easy it is then for another one to form the foundations instead and that they will always keep coming in to replace one another. And I guess if we're really honest with ourselves, even for those of us here who have a relationship with Jesus and would say that we love Jesus and we're trying to really live our lives for Jesus, how easy it is, in fact, for those other things to become the foundations of our lives. And whilst we'd love Jesus to be here at the centre, he can so often get pushed out, and sometimes even without an awareness of it, that we live comfortable lives where actually we rely on the income that we have or the house we have or the people around us. And actually, if those were taken away, we know that our life would radically change because those are the things that have so easily and so rightly in some ways become the foundation stones of our lives. But the story that um, Harry read to us, the rich man from Mark 10, is a story that I really love. Because here's this guy who comes to Jesus, this rich guy, and he says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life with you? And you kind of think that Jesus is about to really tell him off because he starts kind of listing some of the commandments and says, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't murder, all this kind of lifts of the, of, of the commandments that were given back in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And this guy looks at Jesus and he says, but Lord, I've been doing all of these things. And then it's almost in that one moment that you realize the one commandment that Jesus list, left off the list was the first commandment that God gave to Moses which was, have no other God before me. And you kind of almost expect Jesus to go into this like, oh, you know, you've been so focused on your wealth and you've been so focused on all the money that you've got, there is no way you're ever going to be what it is to have a full relationship with me. But the beautiful thing and the beautiful reaction that Jesus has is in verse 21, where it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And I love that little verse, that almost kind of throwaway bit that you can forget so often in this passage. Because when we hear this passage, we think about the, oh, rich people, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for them to ever to get into heaven. But we don't often remember that little verse that says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Like the compassion of a parent looking at a child who has done something wrong and they love that child so much that they know they need to talk to them about it, but actually because they love them. Because Jesus looks at this guy and he loves him, almost with a sense of, I'm so sorry that you have this wealth. I'm so sorry that you are in this position, that it is so hard for you to fully know what it is to be in a relationship with me. And so he says to this guy, out of love and out of compassion, you need to go and sell everything, because that is the only way that you're going to know relationship with me. 
And I really don't think in that passage that God is saying that wealth is wrong. Because if you look through the whole Bible, there are many examples of people who have a lot of wealth who God uses for his glory. But Jesus, in that moment with his wisdom and discernment, saw that for this guy, he just couldn't know what it was to let God be at the center of his life with all of the riches that he had. And so it says that this young man goes away with sadness in his heart, that his face fell, going away thinking, I just don't know if I can do this, if I can really put God at the center. And so the disciples are then left in this situation where they look at Jesus and they're like, but Lord, how can anyone possibly come to know you if actually you say that if it, the only way is if they get rid of all of their wealth? But again, a really beautiful verse right at the end of the passage that uh, Harry read that Jesus says, Jesus looked at them and said, with, with man this is impossible, but not with God all things are possible with God. Uh, a few years ago, we were working with Riverside Performing Arts in Suffolk. We were on tour, and it was coming towards the end of our tour, and we'd been working with a youth group in Bury St Edmunds, and that evening we had been sent out to one of these really rural villages uh, to work in uh, this little area with kind of lots of youth groups that were coming from different parishes, and it was beautiful. It was kind of like the typical picture postcard Suffolk, you know, thatch roofs everywhere, beautiful stone Anglican buildings, you know, pink cottages everywhere in kind of Suffolk pink. And so before the, before the event, uh, the um, vicar of the local parish had asked us around to the vicarage to give us some food. And we were all quite tired in that, oh, we haven't got any energy to talk to new people, but I thought, I'm in charge, I need to sit next to the vicar and make conversation with him. Um, and probably not out of the right attitude, sat next to him thinking, come on, Sarah, you can make conversation. And I started chatting to this guy and just said, oh, you know, this is beautiful, do you love living here, is it a nice area? And so he started to tell me a little bit about his story. And when he was first ordained as a vicar, he was working in Manchester, in some of the really uh, under-deprived, the kind of really underprivileged estates there. And he said often he'd wake up in the morning and windows would be smashed in his house and he'd find syringes out on his front garden. And he said, that was the life I led. But God had called me to that place of brokenness where it was really tough. And I was like, oh, wow, great, fantastic. And he talked a bit more about that. I said, then did you move to Suffolk? He said, oh, no, I didn't move to Suffolk then. Then I really felt God call me out to the Bronx over in America and New York. And he said, and when I got there, I realized that syringes were nothing because at least four times I had a gun pulled in my face because I got involved in the gangs and I worked heavily in kind of the different gangs. And what he said I really faced was that I worked in lots of opposing gangs and they just couldn't understand that I wasn't some sort of traitor who was going around sharing secrets. He said, you know, I faced this guy there, these guns been pulled in my faces, been called goodness knows what, you know, really facing tough, tough, life-threatening situations. So I was like, wow, this is, this is good. This is, you know, more interesting than I thought this meal was going to be. And he shared a bit more. And then he said to me, and, and then it, kind of towards the end of that time being there, I really felt God call me back to the UK. And I ended up being here in Suffolk. And he looked up at me with tears in his eyes and with tears rolling down his cheeks. And he said, I have never felt so broken as I do in this place. Because every other place I've worked, there was a need for God. And here, nobody needs God because everybody has everything they want. Because he said, when I was in Manchester, working with people who were so reliant on drugs and crime, he said they knew they didn't want their lives to be like this. When I was in the Bronx, working with the gangs who were seeing people murdered and killed every single day, he said they knew they didn't want life to be like this. They knew there had to be something more than what they could see around them. And so when I shared about Jesus and when I shared about my faith, they wanted to listen 
because there was something they needed to hear in their lives, which gave them a hope for something greater than what they were living. But he said, here people have got everything. They live in picture postcard perfect cottages. They have all the money they need. They have fantastic relationships. They're part of the Women's Institute. They go bowling every Sunday morning. He said, they don't need the Jesus that I know. But these are the people that nobody comes to. Because in some ways it feels more glamorous to go to the places where it's tough and where it's hard. To the neglect of the people who have everything and who don't know Jesus. You know, he said, actually, I found that when life is tough and when life is hard, even if you don't know God, often people have a response to God. Whether it's anger, whether it's frustration, whether it's just pure and utter desperation, whether it's someone saying, I just can't even pray because I don't believe that God is answering my prayers. It is a response to God. But here in Suffolk, in this village, nobody responds to God because nobody needs God. But... That is why I think I just love this end passage from Mark Mark chapter 10, when it says in verse 27, with God all things are possible, because actually it feels impossible. It feels impossible when life is great and fantastic and fine that people would want to know God, but actually God is bigger, and he says, you know, it's okay, because I can do the impossible. You know, the story of the wise and foolish builders, uh, for many of us, probably quite a recognisable story that if we grew up in Sunday school, we might have heard or you might have seen in cartoons or whatever it is. You know, for a lot of the people that Jesus was speaking to on the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about the wise and foolish builders, a lot of them were fishermen. A lot of the disciples he was speaking to were fishermen. Actually, building your house on a beach felt much more favourable than building it on rocks. A beach was where they worked, it was beautiful, we looked out at the sunny kind of surroundings. Building your house on rocks took work. It took sacrifice. The rocks were a place of danger. That's where the boats crashed. They didn't have you know, massive big lighthouses or satellite navigation systems. They had people dying, crashing on rocks. Building anything on rocks without the technology that we have now and the drills and the equipment would have been tough. It would have taken sacrifice. It would have taken work. And maybe that's what actually, when life is comfortable, we do lack. That sense of sacrifice, that sense of time, that sense of needing to give Jesus the time uh, that he deserves in our lives. And Tim Keller uh, put in one of the books that he wrote, if you want the freedoms of love, the fulfillment, security, sense of worth that it brings, you must limit your freedom in many ways. You cannot enter a deep relationship and still make unilateral decisions or allow your friend or lover no say in how you live your life. To experience the joy and freedom of love, you must give up your personal autonomy. It's a bit tough, isn't it? But it's true, because how many of us here in this room who have a relationship, a friendship that we really, really care about have not sacrificed for somebody else? If I want to spend time with one of my best friends, I give up an evening and I spend time with them. Dan is one of my really good friends. I have spent a lot of time with Dan, me and John, and Dan and his wife, Fee. Dan and Fee have seen us at our worst. They shared a tiny, tiny caravan with me and John and three children for a week. Please hug this man after the service. It was really tough. But we've seen each other at our best and at our worst. Because that's the sacrifice that you make to build relationship. And you don't do that because it's hard work and because it feels like a pain. You do it because you love somebody so much, you want to give them time and you want to put effort and energy into your relationship. And that is how you see your relationships and your friendships grow and soar in beautiful, beautiful ways. 
and actually the same for the relationship that we have with Jesus. That actually there is that part of sacrifice. There is that time. You know, we right now could all either be at home reading the newspapers, we could be going out doing whatever we like, but we've chosen to be here this morning as community together. You know, when a hurricane hits, uh, of which unfortunately and tragically we've seen many times in the news over the last many years, the house that stands when all around is flattened is the house that has been built to hurricane specifications. Now, we've got some friends who are out in America at the moment who kind of have lived through a few hurricanes uh, since they've moved there. And they said, you know, actually building a house to hurricane specifications takes a lot of time. It takes more money, it takes more energy, it takes more sacrifice. But actually when the storms and the winds hit, that is the house that stands when all else around it fails. Because however great our lives are, and however fantastic things are, however comfortable we are, however much money we've got, actually all of us will face many different seasons in our lives. And we will face many types of weather, both good and bad. You know, as Tim spoke of a couple of weeks ago, ultimately, however great and fantastic our lives are, the one thing that we're all guaranteed to face is death. However rich you are, however famous you are, however poor you are, uh, however uh, saddened you are, we will all face death. That will all come upon us one day. In 1997, 2.5 billion people globally tuned in to watch the funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales, on the television. In our country alone, we saw one of the biggest outpourings and expressions of grief that we had ever seen that just took everybody by complete surprise. And I lived in London at the time, and I remember just being in London. It was the weirdest time, because it was silent. It was silent around London, and there were flowers everywhere, everywhere, streets just covered in flowers. And on the day of the funeral, one commentator said, if one of the most famous and loved women in the world could have her life taken so suddenly, it has made all of us watching examine our own fragility. Because for each of us, however great life is, however fantastic life is, sometimes we will be like that house on the sand or those houses that was built on the rock and we will face storms and we will face harder things that actually will make us examine the things in our lives, the foundations on which we place our lives and whether actually those things are cutting it and they will help support us and keep us going in the harder times. In, on the 15th of January 2009, very famously, some of you will probably remember, an aeroplane took off uh, from New York, and within seconds of uh, getting to its kind of uh, ascension point, or that's not the word, is it, whatever it is, high up in the air, um, a flock of geese hit both of the engines. It had catastrophic engine failure and started to basically uh, fall out of the sky in many ways. The pilot tried to turn the plane back to get to the nearest airport, but in realising he wouldn't make it before it crashed, and also in realising that he was in a heavily densely populated uh, area, he managed to miraculously land the plane on the Hudson River. A complete miracle. One of the uh, passengers who was on the plane uh, reported saying that as they kind of left the plane uh, and uh, you know, were met by a gaggle of reporters, we heard a loud bang, then billows of smoke. The pilot came on and said, brace yourselves, we're going down. People everywhere throughout the whole plane started praying. It was a stunning moment. Because actually when all the rest of our foundations are stripped away and when we're in that moment where we are facing death and there is nothing else in our lives right at that point, suddenly people do find that awareness of God. 
maybe people who had never even thought of God before. Because actually we believe in a God who is here for everybody at all times, everywhere. Because something has to be left when everything else in this world is taken away, which is bigger. Because otherwise, what is the point of all of this? There has to be something bigger. And tragically, there are many other situations which we probably know of that didn't end in the same miraculous way that the plane landing on the Hudson River did. But as Tim Keller goes on to say, though Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of pain, it provides deep resources for actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. Because it gives us something more that says, all these things that you see around you, however great they are, however fantastic they are, however brilliant they are, there is something more. Because this life is not what it is all about. But the brilliant thing about having a relationship with God and having Jesus at the foundation of your life right now isn't just about knowing that this life is not it, that there is an eternity that we are going to go to, which is incredible and amazing. Because when we fail on this earth, it's okay, because this isn't what it's about. It doesn't just bring that, which in itself is incredible. It also brings, as Jesus says, life and life to the full right now. Because it allows us to live a life which does not have the same expectations that the world put upon us. Because the world would say to us, you have got to have loads of money. You have got to have an immaculate appearance. You've got to have the right house. You've got to get a partner. You've got to have kids. You've got to always be in the best health. All the things that the world says you have to have to be happy, and they're the only things on which you can be happy. God says, do you know what? There is something more. Because those expectations that the world put on you, and all of those things which are great and fantastic, and please hear me, I'm not saying they're not. Actually, they are temporary, and they are fragile. Whereas a relationship with God is something that is static and doesn't change. That even if the storms come and batter us, God says, I won't change. I will be there at the center. You know, it's not based on striving, but it's based on fullness. Knowing that life doesn't have to be perfect, that we don't always have to get it right, that we don't always have to have it fantastic. But actually, God says, I will still always be there, and I won't let you go. Uh, the t- talk that Tim did a few weeks ago, uh, for those of you that were here, I'm probably, you probably all remember what Tim said about great-grandparents, and he asked us, for those of you that weren't, to uh, put our hands up if we, all re- if we remembered the name of all of our great-grandparents. And I think about three people in the room did. And it really floored me, because obviously Tim went on to say, well, you know, the reality is in 100 years, no one's going to know your name anymore. You know, in 100 years, we could be here, and they'll say, you know, what was the name of your great-grandparents? And people won't know that we won't be remembered. But the brilliant thing about having a relationship with God is it doesn't matter. Because if in a hundred years on this earth nobody knows what your name is, in a hundred years in eternity you are going to be with a God who loves you unconditionally and is cheering you on and welcoming you every single day. And how much greater that is than the temporary of this earth to know that however great, however comfortable, however fantastic life is, actually you can live a life where God is with you and cheering you on and loving you every single day. And just as we finish, I remember the guy in Suffolk, the vicar in Suffolk, saying to me, don't let people's comfortable lives and the fine lives where everything is great fool you into thinking that people don't need Jesus. Because actually these are the people that need Jesus just as much as the people who are living right at the rock bottom. 
but hold on to the fact that even if life is comfortable, and even if when you tell people about Jesus, they don't even seem to want to know, God is the God of the impossible. And the reality is we all do need Jesus. That whether we have an awareness of it or not, we have a God-shaped hole in our lives that needs to be filled. And so as the band come up and uh, continue in a time of worship, I'd just love if we could spend a few minutes as we worship just responding. And there are, I guess, two different ways that I'd love us to respond. The first one is for those of us here who know that actually we do live really comfortable lives. And there are things in our own lives which have actually become rooted in the foundation stone here. And that Jesus is somewhere over here. And we would love to say this morning, God, we don't know how. We don't know how to put you back there. Because actually, we do rely on the money that we have and the house we have and the people around us. But we want you to be the most important thing. That this morning, simply as we worship, you would just spend some time with God saying, God, you are the God of the impossible. You are greater than anything I know. Come back and be at the center of my life. That I can be a light for you in this community and in the communities in which I find myself but also to pray for the people that we know for whom it feels impossible that God could reach them. For the people whose lives are great, who have all the money, who have the great relationships, who everything seems to be going fine for, that actually we would not give up praying for those people, that we would know that these are the people who need Jesus just as much as anybody else, and that we would pray, God, you are the God of the impossible who looks at every single person throughout this whole earth and says, however great it is, however hard life is, I love you. And let's really spend some time praying for them as well. So if you want to, please do stand during the singing. If you want to spend some time just sat on your own with God, or if you want to go up to the back and just pray with the prayer team, they would love to pray with you. So I'm just going to hand over to Ben and to Rachel, and who are going to just lead us in a time of response as we pray. So Father, I thank you that you are the God of the impossible and that you are the God who loves all, no matter how hard, no matter how brilliant life is. Father, we pray that we would be a group of men and women who would have you at the centre and who would shine you into the centre of each of those who you have put us in relationship with. Amen.